If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus, Titus chapter 1. We're starting a new series today, as promised, a week later than I said, but here we are. We're going to start Titus. Uh, Titus is a short book. I love it. You know, I, I open my Bible and the whole book's on two pages. And if you're like me, like, I like to read, but I like short books. Like, if it has 200 pages, like, I'm probably not going to get through that. Because what I found, a book of 200 pages, usually about, they could have said everything they needed to say in about 30 or 40. But they can't sell a 30 or 40 page book, or at least they can't charge 15 bucks for it. Now, I would pay 15 bucks for a 30 or 40 page book. It just said what it needed to say. But Titus, I open it up. It's on one or two pages. I love that. So it's a short study we will be in. And Titus is, so when Paul wrote letters, they were called epistles. Titus, 1 and 2 Timothy are called pastoral epistles. Paul was writing to Titus, to Timothy, uh, pastorally instructing them on how to pastor. Um, that's what Titus is. Titus was a young disciple under shepherd of Paul's, and he was discipling him. Now, we don't know a lot about this man named Titus. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts. However, we believe he was probably at in uh, the Jerusalem Council that's talked about in Acts chapter 15. He was most likely there with Paul, um, most certainly was, but he's not mentioned in the book of Acts. We do know that he was a Greek. Galatians 2 verse 3 says he was a Greek, so he wasn't a Hebrew. He would have been considered a Gentile. In verse 4 of uh, Titus 1, it says that he was a true child of Paul's of the common faith. So most assuredly, Titus came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ under Paul's teaching and preaching and missionary work. He was a faithful servant with Paul. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse, or 2 Corinthians 8 verse 23, Paul says of Titus, as for Titus, he is my partner, a fellow worker for your benefit. So Paul's like Titus. So faithful partner to Paul, who was devoting his life for the benefit of the church. He was likely young. Now, when we read of Timothy, we know that Timothy was timid. Timothy had some physical ailments. Paul one time told him to drink a little wine for his stomach. We don't know exactly what was wrong with him, but he had some ailments. Apparently his stomach, like, I don't know what was wrong, but Titus, most commentators don't believe Titus was like that. They believe Titus was um, a very gregarious person, confident, maybe a type A. And that's probably why Paul chose him to go to Crete. Because Crete, we'll find out, was full of lazy gluttons, brute beasts. Like the people were difficult. It was a difficult place to do ministry. So that's probably why Titus got the call to go there. Crete was a difficult place. Now, we don't know how the gospel got to Crete the island of Crete. We don't know how it got there. We don't know um, if there was missionaries who went there. Uh, Paul was on the island of Crete, but by the time he got there, the church was already there. We know in Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon God's people, and the New Testament church was birthed, that there were Cretans there. So maybe they got saved and took the gospel back to the island of Crete. And the church was established. Now, the island of Crete is in Greece. 
It's, uh, I believe it's the southernmost island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a fairly large island. It's about 135 miles, or 165 miles, I'm sorry, east to west, and about 35 miles north to south. Mountainous, rugged. During the time that Titus was there, there was probably, most historians believe, about 20 cities. So most likely, they were working towards 20 churches on the island, in different houses, in different areas. We will see in verse 5, we won't see it this week, but we'll see it next week, that Paul left Titus in Crete to put what remained in order. We know that he's going to refute false teachers and correct some doctrinal things. We know that he's going to appoint elders in every town. Now, the two predominant false teachings that were affecting the island of Crete that we will see repeatedly through this book, there was both extremes. We talked about that last week, that the enemy just wants to push you in one ditch or the other. So there was the Judaizers, says of the circumcision party, they were the people who were trying to bring Old Testament law, ceremonial and uh, judicial law, back into the church. And they were legalists, they were religious, uh, teaching as doctrines, they were doctrines of man. And they were harming the church causing dissensions, division. But then there was also the Cretans, who were what we would call licentious. They knew they were saved by grace, so they thought since they were saved by grace, they could go and live however they wanted. Like, well, once you're saved, you know, I'm, I'm forgiven by grace, and I can go live however I want. And Paul's like correcting both of those extremes. And we will see that through the book. The last mention, I believe, of Titus was in the book of Romans. I believe it's, well, not the last mention of him was when Paul was in Rome in his last imprisonment. And it says in 2 Timothy that Paul sent him from there to Dalmatia. Now, not Dalmatia, it's just like southeast of here, that little town. Not that, Dalmatia. You're like, really? I didn't know that. No, not there. Dalmatia would be now like, um, it was part of Europe, or it's part of Europe. It would be like modern day Yugoslavia. Is where Titus was sent, and that's the last we know of him. Now, the major emphasis of the book, when you're starting a book, you want to know who's writing it, who they're writing it to. So Paul's writing it, we'll see in a moment. He's writing it to Titus, who's to strengthen the churches on the island of Crete. And you want to kind of look for the theme. And one of the major themes that we'll see in here is that your belief must impact your behavior. Your belief must impact your behavior. Your faith, if you have faith that saves you, is another way of saying that. It's faith that must change you. He, he's going to talk about their beliefs and their behavior. We're going to see a lot about good works, that we should be zealous for good works, all of those things. But before we go any further, let's read the first four verses where we will spend our time this morning. Then I will pray for us and we will get started. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you 
asking that you would bless these next seven or eight weeks as we study your word as your church. That our hearts, that our minds would be opened to see what you would have for us. That we would grow and be more and more conformed to the image of Christ, your son. I pray for anyone who's here this morning or anyone who will come in the next weeks who doesn't yet know you. Would you open their eyes to see their desperate need of the gospel and radically save them for your glory? And for those who are here in this season who are Christians, but their behavior doesn't match their belief, would you bring conviction and your kindness grant them repentance? And I pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be good and acceptable and pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, here we go. Paul. What do we know about Paul? We know Paul was an apostle. He was a, a missionary. He was most likely the most influential missionary in Christianity's history. As a man, he's the most influential man in Christian history other than the man Jesus Christ, Paul. We know he was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew. He was also a Roman uh, citizen, uh, but he was a Pharisee. He was well-educated. He was before his conversion, he was a legalist. He was a persecutor of the way. He was, it says in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 3, that he was breathing, he was ravaging the church and breathing out threats against them. And he was going and he was arresting men and women out of their houses who were Christians, who were people of the way, and throwing them into prison. He was there when Stephen was stoned, and it said he took great pleasure in it. And in Acts chapter 9, it says that Paul went to the leaders of uh, the Jewish community and asked for a letter written that would give him authority to travel around to be able to, to, to arrest Christians. And so he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself confronted him and says, read it in Acts chapter 9. A bright light shone from heaven and he heard a voice and it said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul was physically blinded for a season, but at that moment, the spiritual eyes of his heart were opened. But I think one of the things that's really interesting here, Jesus said, Saul was persecuting Christians. But Jesus took it personal. He's like, so, so why are you persecuting me? See, when Jesus, when God the Father, when Jesus the Son sees his children being persecuted for the cause of Christ, he takes it personal. Like, how many of you as a parent, when somebody mistreats your children, there's just this, <laughs> something rises up within you as a parent, right? It's just like, Really? Like, you know, as a parent, if that, there's one thing that, like, triggers me more than anything, right? Like, like, your kids, like, do you think God's any different? So as parents, when your children fight, when there's not peace and tranquility in the home, how does it make you as a parent feel? Irritated? Frustrated? I mean, just... All the above, right? Well, here's the thing. Don't you think for a moment that God doesn't have the same frustrations when he sees his children? 
when he sees his own children persecuting and reviling and slandering and backbiting each other. That's why we must fight so hard for the unity of the church. Paul says he was a servant of God. A servant, some of your translations would say he was a slave of God. A servant means just one who, who understood that he had a master and he was submitted to his master, to his, to his will, to his direction. He knew that he had been purchased by Christ and owned by him. So he says, Paul, a servant of God. Now he states his authority, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now what's an apostle? Do we have apostles today? No. Capital A, capital A apostle. They were, obviously Jesus' disciples were apostles. Paul was an apostle. They were someone who had to have seen the resurrected Christ. So his disciples did. They had to have, they had to have been commissioned by Christ to be an apostle. The disciples had. They, they had been with the resurrected Christ. He had sent them on mission. Paul. When he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, that's where he met the resurrected Christ personally and had that interaction with him. And he was commissioned by Christ himself to speak for God and to, to write God's word. And as I said, we don't have capital A apostles today. There are people who have apostolic giftings. But now, even when I say that, some of you immediately get tense. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say, why? It's back to that thing that I said last week. The enemy just pushes people in ditches. He wants people in this hyper, what we call cessationist ditch, where they don't believe anything really supernatural happens anymore. And I believe a lot of times grieve the spirit. And then there's this other group over here that's kind of crazy charismatic. So it's just like, <laughs> that's not of God either. And because there's these major extremes today, we, we like as soon as someone says that they believe that people still have apostolic giftings, because an, ap uh, an apostle is just somebody who, who's an ambassador. Somebody who has like, it's just an ambassador. Someone who speaks the message of God. Someone who's a visionary, a missionary. Like, like that, just those giftings. And, and like if you read back commentators of even 7,500 years ago, no one was afraid to use those words because nobody was all worked up about it. But he was an apostle. He spoke for God. But Why? Why was he the apostle? It says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for the sake of their faith, for faith, like believing and spreading the knowledge of the truth, all of those things, for the sake of the faith, that brings us to point number one. Point number one, God has chosen his people. God has chosen his people. Now, for some of you, just, just hear me out. Some of you, as soon as you hear me say that, because it says, for the sake of the, elect, of the faith of God's elect, that word, for some of you, like, depends on your denominational background, your theological background, persuasion might make you really uncomfortable. But it's a word that we see in scripture a lot. We see elect, election, predestination, chosen. This doctrine often creates a lot of division and contention, and it shouldn't, because it's just in the Bible. We're just relaying 
what the Bible says, the doctrine of election. What does it mean to elect someone? You choose them. Like, you, like our country has elections, and we hope we actually elect the person we've chose. Sometimes we're not always sure, right? But like we choose someone. That wasn't a political statement at all. I just <laughs> read between the lines. And the doctrine of election in the church as a Christian is a it's a mystery. That I'm going to be honest, it's almost impossible for the human finite mind to get around it. It's just, we can't completely, but it's so clearly taught and spoken of in Scripture. So clearly. The overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that there is this doctrine of election that God chooses His people. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on then as God's chosen ones. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. Over and over and over in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should not Lose no, I should lose nothing that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. There is a reality, a biblical truth that we so clearly see, that if you're a Christian, if you're adopted into the family of God, if you responded to the gospel, it's because God chose to open your eyes. He chose to place you in the family that he did. I could have been born in a radical Muslim family in the Middle East, but I was born here. Well, what about them? Well, I've heard many stories and testimonies of where God has radically saved those people too, but all of our stories are different. But we see clearly that God chooses those who sa he saves, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. What does it mean to be predestined? Predetermined. In love, he predestined who would be adopted as his children. Now, some of you, this doctrine and this truth makes you really uncomfortable. But I would submit to you this morning, it shouldn't. It shouldn't at all. It should give you great security and hope. It should humble you. If your eyes are open to see your need of the gospel, it's because God granted you the gift of repentance. This isn't a fearful thing. But God has clearly, in some way, chosen all of his people. And some of you have this idea or thought you've been taught that, well, what God did before the foundation of the world, he looked into the future and he saw all who would choose him and those he elected and chose. I don't believe at all that's what Scripture teaches. I don't believe at all. But then some of you are like, well, but God is not willing that any should perish. Right. Scripture says that whosoever will may come. 
Yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And you're like, well, which is it? Am I choosing or is he choosing me? Both. You're like, but I don't want it both ways. It is. Deal with it. It's both. Like, and your choosing is because he opened your eyes to see that you need the gospel. You're like, well, what about other people? I don't know. I can't. I am. I, I have a little three pound, maybe two and a half pound meatball for a brain. I'm not God. You aren't either. But this truth is so clearly taught in scripture. You're like, well, I got to be able to figure it out in my mind. You can't. The enlightenment teaches you that we can figure everything out. You can't. And you're like, well, I'm just going to think on this stuff, figure it out. No, you'll go crazy. You'll go crazy. This is a truth that is so clear. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let Scripture have it say. Why do I believe in the doctrine of election that God chooses his people? Because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. And so by faith, I believe it. And I believe it's good and it's right. And as I said before, if you're a Christian, this doctrine should humble you. Unlike anything else. But we think so often as Christians that I was smarter. I was more intellectual. I figured it out. I found God. Do you ever hear people say, I found God? Like, I get it. But here's the thing. Just think about this a little bit. God's not lost. He didn't need found. You know what the Bible says? We're lost. Who needs found? We do. And I get it. Please don't hear this as a rebuke or a strong correction. But sometimes people say, I accepted Christ. I get the concept. I understand what we mean. But the reality is he doesn't need accepting. He is who he says he is. And he does what he says he will do. If we have accepted him, it's solely because he's opened the eyes of a heart to be able to see our desperate need of the gospel. God has chosen his people. That should humble you. It should humble you because he opened your eyes to see your desperate need of it and he gave you grace and mercy. This should not be a contentious doctrine. You must believe the knowledge of the truth. If you see the human, the divine human cooperative, God opens your eyes, you must believe. God opens your eyes, you must believe. You must repent. You must crucify your flesh. You must be conformed to the image of Christ, God's son. Do you see the divine human cooperative? God saves you to sanctify you. God chooses his people. We know that Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, we're not saved by works so that no man may boast, but we are saved by what? By grace alone, through faith alone. And if we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, it's because God has opened your eyes. God has chosen his people. Number two, truth leads to godliness. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point this morning because we're going to hit this over and over in this passage. But it says, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. With godliness, truth. The truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word should lead us to, go to, to, to godliness. It, we have been predestined, Romans 8, 29, 
to be conformed to the image of Christ, God's son. God has predetermined that his children would be conformed to the image of Christ, God's son. So this truth that we believe should conform us to godliness, that we would live differently, that our belief matches our behavior, right? That's what, like, Paul's writing to Titus. He's giving them an overview of the first four, four verses. He wants them to know what the truth that he really wants them to understand right up front. He wants us to have an overview. This truth must lead to godliness in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Titus. It's real easy to find. Just look over the next page. Just, it's all right there. For the grace of God has appeared. How did it appear? In Jesus Christ. Bringing salvation to all people. Like, well, there it is. It's to all people. It's available to all. Training us, here it is, this truth, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord, of our great God and Savior, Christ, or Jesus Christ. You see this, this truth should it must move us to godliness. Faith that saves you is faith that what? Changes you. Now, as I said before, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. But are we? No. We fail miserably every day, fall short of the glory of God. But here's the thing. As a Christian, as I grow in my relationship with the Lord and I'm mature, I should become more and more and more and more like Christ. As you've heard me say over and over, perfectly no, but increasingly yes. I'm not the person that I was six months ago. I'm not the person that I was six years ago, but I'm not the person I ought to be. And the closer we get to the Lord, the more you grow in your relationship with him and the closer you get, I think sometimes we think the closer we get to the Lord, the more perfect we feel about ourselves and the more we are able to look down on others. That's exactly the opposite effect. Paul, when he was new into the ministry, he says, I'm the worst of the apostles. Like, out of the dozen guys, he's like, I'm the worst of them all. At the end of his life, what's he say? I am the worst of the saints. He's like, out of all the Christians, I'm the worst. Because he understood his depravity. He had a greater relationship with the Lord and a greater knowledge of who he was. And when the closer you get to the Lord, even though you're being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, the greater, the, the closer you get to the light, the more you see your darkness and your depravity. But this truth is to lead us to godliness. Number three, he wants us to know that the hope of eternal life is certain. It's certain. The hope of eternal life is certain. He says, this truth that leads to godliness in this, in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. The hope of eternal life is certain. It's certain. It's not, it's not hoping like, okay, there's a big game next week, right? And so like, we're in Pennsylvania, and a Pennsylvania team made it to the Super Bowl. Now, it's interesting, and like I have no reason why, like I don't know why, but it seems like like, we're actually closer to Philadelphia than we are to Pittsburgh. But there's just a great, usually in this area, there's more Steelers fans than there are Eagles fans. Right? So, all right. So, by vote this morning, just, this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I just want to find out. Like, Steelers fans, like, go ahead. There you go. 
And they're really proud of it, some of them. I mean, it's as high as they can get it. <laughs> All right, so Eagles fans. Oh, I, you know, I, the Eagles fan. some of you are bandwagon jumpers. You're like, they're in the Super Bowl this year. I'm an Eagles fan. Like, if the Steelers are in, you're be like, I'm a Steelers. Like, and you know what the good thing about that is? Like, if you're able to just move uh, around and always go with the favorite, like, like, most times you have a good Monday, right? But, um, and then I will tell you in the first service, I think it was about tie, maybe more Steelers than Eagles. But here's the thing. There's a game next week. Now, all right, let's do this too. How many of you hope, like, Steelers or no Steelers or whatever, you just hope the Eagles lose? Go ahead. You just want the Eagles lose. Go ahead. Come on. Yeah, it's funny. That, that's funny. That's funny. Uh, um, how many of you hope they win? Yeah, there we go. Like, you know, okay. Okay. Some of you hope they win. Some of you hope they lose. Some of you hope they all lose. That's my one I'm at. Like, who do I want to lose both teams? If they could both lose, I would be that. Some of you hope it doesn't snow at all the rest of this year. Some of you hope it snows. But those hopes aren't certain. We all hope our children come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that's not certain. But this hope of eternal life is certain. Because the God who never lies promised it. So this hope is certain. God never lies. He never overpromises. He never underdelivers. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Whoever believes has eternal life. And that hope is certain. One of my favorite passages in the book of, in the book of John chapter 14. John 14. Jesus, just before he was, soon before he was crucified, he says this to his disciples, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus would say that to you this morning. Like, we see culture and society becoming increasingly dark. Do we not? Just increasingly dark. Sometimes we can wring our hands and feel like it's hopeless. There's a lot of reasons to be discouraged. But Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Here's why. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what have I told you? That I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. There's a great hope that is certain. Jesus said, he's with the Father. Now, he's preparing a room in the Father's house. Now, think about our universe the world. I believe that Jesus created everything we see from nothing in six literal days. I believe Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a historical narrative. And if he created this in, in six days, but he's in heaven preparing a place, can you imagine? The decades. Some of you think you're going to get a mansion in heaven. You're not. Some of you are like, what? It's my only... I'm only hope of getting out of the double wide trailer. <laughs> I really want to sing, 
She's the queen of my double wide trail with the polyester curtains and the redwood deck. So I did. Um, the Bible doesn't talk about mansions in heaven. It doesn't. It talks about a room in the Father's house. I'm telling you, that's so much better. In the Father's house. Think of that. Jesus is in heaven preparing a room in the Father's house. And he's like, if it was not so, why would I have told you that? Your eternity is certain. It's a great hope. And then he goes on, he says to, to them, he says, Thomas said, Lord, and he, Jesus said, and you know where I'm going, verse 4. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Doubting Thomas. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And for all those who go to the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ, their eternity is certain. It's certain. That's a great hope. The hope of eternal life is certain. It's certain. Number four, God's word must be proclaimed. God's word must be proclaimed. Verse three, Titus one, verse three, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Through the preaching, God has commanded, directed that his word must be proclaimed. Now, what does it mean to preach? It means to proclaim. He said, through the preaching with which he had been entrusted by the command of God as Savior. Preaching just means to proclaim, to announce, to herald a message. The message of truth, the good news of the gospel. Now, something that we've probably all heard is like, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. It's a great idea, but it, you can't do that. You can't. You can't preach the gospel without words. It's good news. It has to be heralded, shared, sh preached, proclaimed. That's one of the reasons we gather as a church. It's one of the reasons we want you to invite people in so we can preach and proclaim the message of God, the hope of the gospel. The people would be brought. God has chosen to save people through the preaching of his word. It must be proclaimed. But the purpose of preaching So that the lost would be saved and the saved would be matured so that we would be, there would be more worshipers. That's the end goal. That's the end goal. Sometimes we think we come to church to sing and to worship and prepare our hearts for the message. No, 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 no. We preach so that there are more and better worshipers. That's why we do this. In heaven, I'm out of a job. No need for preachers. Because it will be worshipers. But God has, God's word must be proclaimed. 1 Corinthians 6.21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleases God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The unbelievers hear what we preach and it's just like, wah, 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 wah. Until God opens their eyes to be able to see, to be able to hear, it just falls on deaf ears. But it's pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those. Preaching is just continuing to offer the promises of God to all people until he returns. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 speaks of this, that God's saving people through preaching. Romans 10 verse 13 
for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? He's asking a question. How are they going to call on him? And they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. God has chosen to save his people through the preaching of his word. God has ordained it as a primary means of the good news of the gospel moving forward. And it says that he has been commit. He says he's doing this by the command of God. It says it right there in verse Verse 3, I've been trusted by the command of God our Savior. There are men. We believe, Scripture teaches that God calls and commissions, anoints and commands them to preach God's word, to proclaim the message of the gospel. Now, we are all supposed to be able to share it and to instruct. But Paul's like, he's been commanded by God. And he was giving that mission, that commission to Titus. And he says in verse 4 to Titus, my true child in a common faith. True child, that just means Titus most likely came to saving faith in Jesus Christ under Paul's ministry. In the common faith, to be a Christian, we all have a common faith. It doesn't matter what denomination we are. It doesn't matter if we're non-denominational, interdenominational. It doesn't matter what flag or banner or brand we fly. To be a Christian means we share common faith. As Jude 3 says, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We all have this common faith. It's what unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says this, grace and peace from God, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace and peace. I want to leave you with this. If you're saved, it's because of God's grace, his unmerited favor. It's because he opened your eyes to see your desperate need of a savior and by his kindness and love granted you repentance. And then comes peace. First peace with God because prior to our salvation we are enemies of God. But listen, God's word says, in this world, you will have trouble. But the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is to guard and guide our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we're saved by grace, there should be a tranquil peace within our hearts. But I'm going to be honest, as Christians, a lot of times it's lacking, is it not? We don't feel peace. We're anxious, we're fearful, we're bitter, we're hurt, confused. But Christ, this morning again, would just want you to be reminded, listen, if you're a Christian, you have peace with God. And your eternity is certain. And there's a room in the Father's house. And you're adopted in his family. And no matter if this world and this life doesn't meet your expectations, one day, every tear will be wiped away. Every anxiety gone. 
every broken relationship reconciled. And when we understand that, even if you're in the midst of difficulty, trials and tribulations, you should be able to rest for a moment in the peace and the tranquility of God. And that is a word for me this morning as much as it is for anybody in the room. And as we go to take communion today, because we want to be a gospel-centered church. For those of you who are Christians, I want to speak to you first. If you could just look at the bread for a moment. Represents Christ's body broken for you at Calvary. So you could have eternal life. So you can be reconciled to a holy God. So you get a peace with God. So your eternity could be certain. But for those of you who aren't Christians, I'm going to just speak to you for a moment. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. And you're welcome. We're so glad you're here. We want you to be here. And there's no judgment. But we would just ask that you would take communion with us this morning as a non-believer because scripture is clear that if you take communion in an unworthy manner you will eat and drink judgment upon yourself and we don't want that for you and so it would be remiss of me not to warn you and so if you're not a Christian again there's no judgment just take the elements back out with you drop them in the tray drop them in the trash can it's okay there's no judgment we pray that you will soon be a Christian so that you can take communion with us but also, Scripture is clear that if you're a Christian, you can take communion in an unworthy manner as a Christian. And that is, if as a Christian, you are living in willful, unrepentant sin, I would just ask that you let these elements pass you by this morning. Now, when I say that, I know for Christians, a lot of times they get a little bit fearful, like, because we all sin, right? We all know we sin. But there's a difference between willful, unrepentant sin. So if you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, if you're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at, there's just a few examples. I would say to you this morning, let this pass you by. Deal with your sin this week. And come back next week and let's take this together. In remembrance of what Christ did for us. That we can be forgiven, have peace with God, and our eternity is secure and certain. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks. And he gave it to his disciples. He said, take this and eat it in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. Your blood spilled out on our behalf. Your body broken for us. 
we worship you as the creator of all, the sustainer of all, the savior of the world, our savior. We thank you that you have chosen us, that you're conforming us to the image of Christ. We thank you that our eternal life is certain and secure. You have given us peace. May we live in that this week. May your word be proclaimed for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Have a great week. Remember, remember there's a mission. And above all, put on love. Have a great week.